0: that GST will ever be part of our policy, never ever, ever, it's dead.
1: What we've just heard from the Leader of the Opposition and the Leader of the National Party are the most pathetic contributions I've heard in such a weighty debate in my 22 years here.
0: Under cover of darkness, American, British and Saudi warplanes rained destruction on military targets across Iraq and Kuwait. I I do not believe as an issue of principle that one generation and assume responsibility for the acts and deeds of an earlier generation. The national buyback of guns is expected to cost every Australian taxpayer up to $50.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s, episode 5. In this final instalment on Australia, Chloe and I thought that we would focus a little bit more on the role of Australia in the 1990s in the world. So we spoke earlier about Keating, Paul Keating's attempt to pivot Australia's foreign policy towards Asia. He saw Australia's future as being in Asia. But I wanted to open our discussion, our broader discussion of Australia in the world during that decade by asking Chloe about Keating's place in the kind of new left, um, new Labour, new Democrat dynamic that's going on in the rest of the world. Because it seems like Keating kind of lines up with that dynamic, but maybe just that it's just that the timelines aren't quite in sync.
0: No, that's absolutely right, Emma. I spoke in our episode about new Labour in Britain, about how Paul Keating had ins- had inspired um, Tony Blair and his advisors in how to hate effectively in politics. But much more than that, the Hawke-Keating governments and their management of the capitalist economy, that did provide a lot of intellectual inspiration to both the Democrats in the US and Labor in Britain, remembering, of course, that there are you know very strong intellectual links between those left of centre parties across the Anglosphere. So, yes, I think it's totally fair to say that Paul Keating and Bob Hawke did have an influence on what we saw on the centre-left in the 1990s through the work that they were doing in the 1980s, which raises another question, which is a serious question that a lot of historians are talking about right at the moment, which is, was Hawke and Keating's Labour Party neoliberal?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of like, on Twitter about that at the moment, Chloe, when it comes to debates about the the so-called new accord and the role of the Hawke-Keating government's in that um what's your position on on this issue do you think that the hawk keating government was was neoliberal
0: i think that and i am going to fudge here purely because i think that you know it would take me an hour a very boring hour to tell you all my opinions about hawk keating and neoliberalism but it's unavoidable you know they were unavoidably implicated in the rise of neoliberalism in the rise of, of you know the um penetration of the market into every aspect of life and society the question we're really asking and that's being debated at the moment is was labor responsible for the damage that was done to livelihoods and to the social contract under neoliberalism or did they protect us from the worst of that? Or was it somewhere in between? Am I framing that as, you know, kind of an impossible binary choice? I will absolutely link to some of those debates in the show notes.
1: Yeah, and they they are extensive debates, it's worth saying. And again, it's probably one of those historical questions that will will never be resolved to everybody's satisfaction. And I suspect you're right, Chloe, that the, the answer probably lies somewhere in between. And I suppose that my concern with that debate, as as important as it is, is that it tends to focus on the Hawke Keating reforms as either the kind of source or the protection from that damage, instead of focusing on Howard's economic legacy and also Howard's legacy for Australia in the world.
0: Let's talk about that. We spoke we've spoken previously about how Paul Keating had this sort of pivot to Asia for Australia. What was John Howard's, what was his approach to foreign affairs?
1: Well, I think Howard was very, you know, unsurprisingly, he's he's very traditional, you know, he... he... Deeply valued Australia's ties to to the former empire, to the United Kingdom, and to the United States. But I think he, he also differed from both Hawke and Keating, in that he he was largely reactionary when it came to foreign policy. When it came to thing came to things that were happening in the world, he didn't have a real ambition to to drive things. And we and we saw that um, play out, I guess, to its extreme when it came to. The debate about climate change in the 1990s and how it's, you know, continual line that Australia is, basically, there's no point in Australia doing anything about climate change because the big countries are, are where the power and the influence lies, you know we're just kind of a small fish in a big pond. Yeah,
0: and of course that's you know, that's a line of argument that has been resurrected very conveniently by the current Liberal government What about, what about Australia's relationship with the United States? Because obviously we now have a Conservative leader, while while well, the USA is being led from the centre-left. what does How does that shape up?
1: That's right. So, I, I mean, I did say that that Howard is very intent on preserving and enhancing, I suppose, Australia's relationship with the United States. But, of course, he and Clinton uh, don't like each other that much. You know, Howard famously got a very cold reception from Clinton when he did visit the United States. Of course, Clinton was embroiled in the Lewinsky affair at the same time. But, of course, ideologically, they, they certainly don't Line up at all. Um, Howard Howard doesn't really come into his own with the United States until George Bush Jr. Um, is inaugurated as president in uh, towards the end of the decade. But that's not to say that the relationship necessarily suffers while Clinton is uh, president in the U.S. Despite those ideological differences, because there is of course a a deep bipartisan consensus in Australia, uh, both today and in the nineteen nineties, where we as a country, kind of support the United States really unquestioningly. So, And that goes back to the start of the decade when Australia sent nearly 2,000 defence personnel to the Gulf War to support President Bush's invasion there. And, and that happens, you know, if you can line up your timelines, that happens under bob Hawke, well while he was still prime minister so the 1990s when when we look at the relationship between australia and the u.s we see that that long tradition of australia following the u.s wherever it goes um continuing as as it does to this day yeah.
0: and do you think that it would be fair to say because obviously you like you said we're lining up timelines and we're lining up different configurations of government that have have you know have have come from different political parties and different sides of the debate but would you say that in in both Australia and the USA that defence spending and militarisation you know I I guess the basic structure of that is fairly uncontroversial I mean we've seen how that played out quite dramatically and heartbreakingly for the US in the 90s but the fact of military spending that's that's a consistent feature across these governments isn't it?
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. And and close military ties, close ties over intelligence. Um, those are all things, you know, we're familiar with today and, and continue in the 1990s. I think the, the interesting parallel that we see beginning to emerge in that decade is the militarisation of foreign policy more broadly. So when it comes to Australia, it's especially the, the kind of securitisation and militarisation of immigration as an issue.
0: Okay, and so to come back to Asia is that something that we see playing out in the 90s under Howard so Howard didn't he didn't totally ignore Asia did he in his foreign policy
1: No he he certainly didn't um ignore Asia he he certainly regarded Asia as important for Australia's trading relationship, if not for its geo- geopolitical and, and security relationships. Um, I think, you know, one of the most significant Australian interventions in our region happened towards the end of the decade in September 1999, when Australia led the the UN mission in East Timor, which is, of course, one of Howard's Important foreign policy legacies, and one that we, we are still grappling with today as, as more comes to light about Australia's treatment of East Timor post that UN mission, and, and the, you know, for want of a better word, the, the despicable way that the Australian government has treated the East Timorese people and government since.
0: I'm keen to get to that issue of the securitisation of foreign policy. But it would also be remiss of us to not at least mention China, because you can't—it's impossible to think of Australia's foreign policy today without thinking of China. And I'm interested in how that's evolved from what it was in the Howard years.
1: Well, I mean, I think for what it's worth, that Howard probably would have liked to have thought about Australia's foreign policy without thinking too deeply about China, because. He saw that relationship I think as a very simple relationship, as a as an export import relationship where China takes our, our raw materials and, and drives our mining boom and that's kind of the end of it. And I think that is is deeply connected both to Howard, you know, privileging, overwhelmingly privileging the relationship with the United States as a political and, and military relationship um, but it's also deeply related to the, to the xenophobia and racism that's swamping Australian politics at this time. We, you know, we spoke um, in an earlier instalment about Pauline Hanson and her kind of despicably racist comments about the, the danger of Australia being swamped by Asians. So while Howard's maintaining this trade relationship with China, he's also kind of, I guess, outsourcing the racism to One Nation,
0: and I guess if you think about that at the sort of brutal level of political tactic, it's, it, will, it serves his purposes quite well. It meant that he was able to sort of segment that relationship with China off to, to trade rather than letting it, I guess, enter into other, into other aspects of politics, which is something that the Liberal Party has really not been able to restrain itself from doing in recent years.
1: Yeah, that that is. I think that is an ongoing issue, and we and we've seen that quite recently with you know Scott Morrison and Donald Trump being so close and and making such a performance of of Australia and the United States being so close, and then and the issue then of course how China fits into that relationship when China and the United States are engaged in a so called trade war, and and the the failure I think of of the Liberal government to to manage that what is an extremely difficult situation, but to manage it well.
0: When I think about Howard era immigration policy, it's I find that it's very easy for my mind to jump to that post 2001 post Tampa period. But would you say that the the, was the groundwork for that laid in any way in the 1990s?
1: It certainly was. I think. I think it's really important to acknowledge that any conversation we have about the mandatory detention of asylum seekers, which yeah, I think is what we we're talking about, that that's kind of Howard's legacy when it comes to immigration policy, that actually started under Paul Keating. Um, so this is this is mandatory detention, which is the requirement to detain any non-citizen who arrives without a valid visa. That was introduced by a Keating Labor government in 1992 in response to um, increasing arrivals from Indochina by boat. So this is a Keating policy, um, but it was Howard. It was the Howard government that cemented this as a policy, that expanded it and, and turned it into... The kind of um, seemingly unshakable bipartisan consensus that we are accustomed to today, where part, the parties, two major parties, are trying to kind of outdo each other when it comes to their harshness in uh, the way that Australia treats asylum seekers.
0: Yeah, and and again, to you know, I guess I guess kind of to speak to the tactical smarts, um, if not the evil genius of Howard, was he also, he not only turned it into consensus, but he turned it into an effect, a very effective instrument with which to wedge the Labor Party and to, to beat up on the Labor Party for decades after. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And I'm, I'm interested in how, you know, I mean, we've talked about a lot about the politics of the Howard era. I'm interested in how that filtered through into culture, or how, how that was weaponized in culture. And that's as much out of self-interest as anything else, because I've got to admit that I, I was kind of a nerdy little kid, and I kind of completely bypassed Australian culture in the 90s, I think, when everyone was reading Tomorrow When the War Began. I was reading uh, classic English
1: novels. Yes, uh, very on brand. I think a lot of us were probably busy um, also reading the first Harry Potter books. Um, at least I know I was, and we've spoken about that in, in previous podcasts. Um, but it, it is really interesting, you know, we've talked a lot about revisiting and, and rethinking the 1990s because, in retrospect, absolutely that kind of toxic political culture that's, that's deeply imbued with racism is filtering through into broader popular culture. So most high school students, I think, who who went to school in Australia in the 1990s would have read um, John Marsden's Tomorrow When the War Began and, and loved it and loved it deeply, as did I. Um, without pausing for a moment to reflect on just how deeply racist that book is. so for, so for those who haven't read it tomorrow like when the war be- <laughs> um, Tomorrow when the war began tells the story of a, of a group of teenagers who go camping in Australia and while they' are out camping and kind of off-grid um, Australia is invaded by by an unknown um, force from the north but of course from the north, in the Australian context generally means you know we're we're invaded by brown people and that in in that book that kind of racism is never interrogated and certainly when I was studying it in high school I was never prompted from our kind of very comfortable white suburban existence to reflect on that and to and to reflect on the impact that that book has had on a generation of of white Australian kids.
0: Yeah, I mean like I said, I I never read Tomorrow When the War Began. I don't I don't know I honestly I don't know why I thought I just thought I was too cool for it. Um completely skipped young young adult novels. But I think it's interesting that you you know you talk about this kind of this um, blase attitude towards race you know and it's not you know it's kind of a latent a latent racism in culture that in the nineties and I think we've spoken about this before was excusable in the terms of the nineties but it's one of those things that is being revealed really powerfully as a really corrosive and negative force in our culture because I don't think, you know, I think, again, something that would be remiss of us not to mention is that we're recording this in a week when the US is alight with protest. And it's quite interesting seeing people who are, you know, quite comfortably sitting back in Australia and condemning the US for its track record of racism. And I think that that, you know, that comes, that can, in some places, that comes from, that place of you know latent just pure ignorance um, and the failure to interrogate you know things like things as innocent as those childhood texts like tomorrow when the war began and to see what they were really telling us about our country,
1: absolutely and and to sit back and and you know watch films like. Like Romper Stomper, which is released in in ninety two and and have a kind of laconic debate about whether we should be reviewing it, you know, whether it is racist, um, when when non white Australians are, are having to kind of live the reality of that film, and and you're right that I think that we are at the moment being faced with that in a in a particularly potent way.
0: Yeah, and I don't I don't know that we have. Well, I think. I- on the part of white Australia, I don't think we are ready for the mature conversation that that requires and the self-reflection and the self-reflection and self-interrogation that is demanded of us.
1: That's true. And I think that's especially true if you, know, if you sort of fast forward to the, to the end of the decade and the, and the start of the, a kind of new era in Australia, which, which arguably, of course, um, the turning point for that is September 11, but also in Australia, it's the Tampa Affair.
0: And to bring that together with the theme of this series, which is this idea of the long 1990s, I guess what you're suggesting is that the 1990s in Australia didn't end at the turn of the millennium. They didn't end with the Sydney Olympics, which we haven't even gotten to in this episode. But they ended in 2001 with the Tampa Affair and, of course, which was tied up. With both September 11, which happened only a month after, I think only a month after that kicked off, and also with the Australian election that took place in the in the midst of all this, I think what Tampa, and you know, for anyone who has a vague has only a vague recollection of that, we will include links in the show notes about that affair. What it demonstrated about John Howard was that he was able to, for you know, one of the first times, flex political muscle and what he had built up, which was, you know, in the election, which was really its worst, most xenophobic instincts. And he was able to use that with impunity. And this is something that would only get worse as the decade progressed as September 11 occurred. And then as Australia went on to enter into the Iraq war.
1: That's right, Chloe. And those are all issues that we will cover in further episodes of barely getting by the long 1990s. But we are going to take a little break next week to give ourselves a little rest from dealing with technology and and small children and dogs and people at home and trying to record. We are, though, um, going to give ourselves a little bit of time to do an extra episode to reflect on the unfolding disaster in the United States, which no doubt a lot of you have been watching very closely, as have Chloe and I. So that discussion will drop on the usual time um, on Wednesday of next week and we will return to the long 1990s with episode six the week after that. Thanks for listening. Barely and By is
0: supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen.